Well, I'm glad I'm getting you at the start of this. Before I'm tired? Before you're tired of listening to people. (laughs) I'm Lyle Troxell, and welcome to Lunch with Lyle, finally actually recorded at lunchtime. Today I'm joined by Dr. Juko Holiday, who has run a yoga studio for the last six years in my hometown of Ben Lomond, California. Ease Mountain Yoga has been a center for the community and has breathed new life into Ben Lomond. Juko is ordained as a lay Zen Buddhist, holds a BA from Brown in Providence, Rhode Island, a master's in clinical psychology from Antioch in LA, and a PhD in transpersonal psychology from ITP Sophia University in Palo Alto, California. Her dissertation was Stories Are Medicine, Responding to Deep Sadness with Spirit. Right off the bat, we had some technical difficulties. And we start right after she had to reboot her laptop, which seemed to have magically fixed the technical problem. Do you have magical thinking when it comes to technology? Well, I I know that sometimes just starting over, restarting, rebooting, Mm -hmm. it works in life (laughs) with computers. Juco, have you rebooted in your life before? Oh, brother, have I. (laughs) I know about your recent reboot of your whole home being burned down in the fires last summer. Yeah. That's a pretty serious reboot. That's a serious reboot. It's interesting because it's like an ongoing theme <laughs> of of being called again and again and again and again to um, live out the values that I articulate, not just theoretically, but in actuality. And so the the interesting thing about it's not just the house, not just the fires that destroyed everything. My business, you know, the aforementioned. With COVID. With COVID. So my, uh, and it was like, if we were doing this as a cheesy made for TV movie, <laughs> the intro would be like just showing me like sailing through life, just everything going really well. Um, my business was profitable, which is a minor miracle in this day and age. And I was on the cusp of, um, uh, teaching my first national retreat. Uh, and I had this just almost movie like life in the woods and the forest in these little tiny houses and just totally contented. And I did manage to grab this coffee mug before I left, but I would sit on the stoop of my little tiny house before I commuted 10 minutes down a beautiful mountain road to uh, the most loving, amazing, wonderful job. (laughs) Of running a yoga studio with hundreds of people that love being there that love being there and that, and that co-created just something that is, I'm in the process of still releasing of letting that go. And so, um, but, but, uh, is it okay if I tell you a story that's on my mind? So I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not just a yoga studio owner, or yoga school owner, because I've changed my focus. I've told people I'm not really teaching fitness-based yoga anymore, and we're a yoga school. 
and not cool. a yoga studio <laughs> to try to respond to what's happening. But I also, I mean, I have a doctorate in psychology and I was working on my dissertation in Topanga Canyon. And we wound up losing that home to the recession. Actually, let me rephrase that. We chose to give that home back to the bank <laughs> and completely revamp our lives. So we went from like the L.A. thing to Panga Canyon thing to living in the middle of a forest <laughs> in 360 square feet. <laughs> and it was wonderful. It was wonderful. That, so that's another reboot that you've done. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I would have to be a guest like three days for us to go through all what, the reboots. What, so when you, what was your life like in mm -hmm. LA and Topanga Canyon? Were you, what were you doing there? Well, I did not have 10 year old dreadlocks. <laughs> I, I'm from Dayton, Ohio. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm the daughter of a auto worker, a whole family of auto workers, General Motors. Um, I was I know I went back before L.A. I just I was bored in 1970. <laughs> so but that's an important part of it, because I was sort of the first generation of um, black folks, black children, where there was all this hope that we would benefit from the civil rights legislation that happened six years before I was born and the Voting Rights Act. So it was an incredible time of hopeful time. And rough. <laughs> There's a lot of rough stuff going on. But I, I, I took that, all that hope, and I moved to um, Los Angeles when I was 25. So I mm -hmm. finished university, undergrad, done some cool things. And I was in L.A. <clears throat> because I had visited, uh, thinking about colleges. I had an uncle who lives there still. And it just felt right. I was like, ooh, sunshine, and everybody's looks nice, and their teeth are straight, and everybody's has skateboards and rollerblades. I mean, you know, it just felt like this is a place I could hang out for a while. And um, I had uh, ideas. I went, I, I had a job as an educator. I taught middle school. And, um, and I had aspirations to be in the entertainment industry. And at a certain point, I quit my teaching job and I made forays into that industry. And in retrospect, this, that whole journey was just so I could meet one of my most important teachers, I think. And his name was Al Mancini. And I studied with him. I studied as an actor with him. And he changed my life creatively but also he set something in me free. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. And then that was also where I had my second significant encounter with yoga because I was kind of there before yoga studios were even a thing sort of in our national consciousness. So this was like yeah. the mid nineties. So this was before corporate yoga. <laughs> and um, so I was there doing these exciting things and often we, I believe, we, we think we know what we're doing <laughs> or why we're <laughs> in a place and what we're up to. And what we don't know is that these amazing and beautiful forces are actually giving us something else that we need. Mm. 
mm. for this whole other journey. Because if you had told me in 1995 that 25 years later I'd be sitting in the woods in a tiny house with dreadlocks <laughs> in a you forest, wouldn't have it, right? yeah. I would have bet you money <laughs> that, that was not going to happen. <laughs> right. Do you think that that idea that something else is always happening for you that you're not aware of has been a consistent thing in your life? I'm, I am nodding my head. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. Yes. And the delicious part, or I think the part about, oh, can I say a cuss word? Yeah. Okay. So the part about being a grown ass woman <laughs> or grown ass person is one of the, one of the, one of the, you know, signposts is when one starts to trust that. Mm -hmm. And so when my business closed because of COVID, when my house burned down, when I sat through um, and, and observed and experienced all the grief with all the national, racial, cultural, social, political discord we're living with, there is something in me that said, oh, you know what? When stuff gets like this, there's always something happening that I might not be aware of that is carrying me someplace. And if I can soften into that and not constrict around things and try to drive it or control it or make it go the way I think it should go, it always works out better for me. So the sooner I just relax <laughs> and, and ride the wave, then the less suffering I go through and the more jovial I can be to my husband <laughs> and the kinder to other people because I'm not my jaw isn't clenched and I'm not my stomach isn't you know tight and I can relax into the wave you call that softening yeah softening, softening. it's not just physical it's a it's a mental thing too oh it's a whole body thing yeah. it's a whole it's a whole it is it's it's exhaling right it is um uh if I think about the autonomic nervous system, <laughs> if we consider the autonomic nervous system for a moment, you know, that is the part of us that is the fight, flight, freeze, or feign, unconscious process when the psyche body, and that's a word one of my teachers uses to indicate the whole being, perceives something. You had a conversation about perception. So when we perceive something and our unconscious mind is taking in these signals through our sensory system and all of a sudden we get a little feeling of something's off. We get a feeling maybe of fear or agitation or, you know, we become heightened. And that, that part um, prepares us to respond to risk. And so our muscle tension increases, our heart rate increases. We have all of these sort of physical responses. And the problem is, uh, we're, because of all we're going through in these times, we're often in that state so much that we don't even know it. Yeah. And so the softening is softening, giving that, giving ourselves a chance to back away from that readiness to fight. <laughs> or to fuss or to beep 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 <laughs> that, that that reaction that's also you can label that as stress too right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. it is it's yeah. a stress reaction yeah. 
And, and tons you, of things yeah. in our body shut down when that happens, right? Like our digestive slows down, our hair growth slows, like all these things that are about, that aren't necessary for that instant of whatever happening that we're designed for. You know what else slows down? What else turns down? Our libido, our desire to create. So I'm, I'm, I, so I, I'm going to say that word libido. I don't mean it just in the, in the, in our drive to um, procreate, <laughs> but it is that just appetite for generativity. Because if you're running and fighting for your life, you don't have space to be creative. That's not the time. Right. The primal self is like, we don't have time to, to create right now. So I think that creativity as a response to that actually sort of helps in that softening process. How did you learn this softening process? What, what, where, where did this come from for you? <laughs> Was this something you had as a child? Hell No. <laughs> What I had as a child was, where in the hell am I and how do I get out of here? <laughs> where have I Is that I what landed? Dayton, Ohio feels like? <laughs> oh, yes. And it is so sad. Listen, I'm so proud to be from Dayton, Ohio. But no, it's, it's sad. It's a city. It's one of those cities of places that are dying. Mm-hmm. Um, this happening. Yeah. Well, let's advance you into like yes. college years where you're dealing with a lot of stress. Like you got to get your classes done, all that. Were you at that point? There was no, there was nothing compared to the early stuff. Cause I think there's two things that are important to know. Yeah. Cause I mentioned the part about being a, being a black child in the 1970s, but also I was, um, I'm a, I was surrendered into foster care at birth. Wow. So I was placed into foster care. And at the time I was, it was clear and adoption papers and, and documents that I've, I had access to as an adult, that uh, it was made clear to my birth mother and her parents were the ones who were driving this, um, that I was not going to be placed because I, she was white and my father was black and then I was adopted into a black family. So, and that was just a miracle that that happened. And so from the very beginning, I was kind of like on my and there's pictures of me, like a little loaf of bread, you know, on a couch all by myself, just, you know, and I can see the tension even then. Mm. So I think that's important to know because that obstacle or that challenge or where I kind of got dropped off in this human thing we're doing, <laughs> that that has informed everything that has come from that. So like, I know what it's like to be like, okay, I've got to rely on something inside of me because these things outside of me may be not so reliable. And so while it sounds tragic, it's also um, why I am probably... Practiced? Well, practiced, but also I am resilient. I mean, Mm -hmm. there is like a, there's a resilience that even I look at, like I say to myself, how are you still standing up right now? Yeah, right? yeah. And so then, and there are other things that that happened as, you know, in my household that were very difficult. And so then I got out and now we can talk about college. Okay, thank you for, <laughs> yes. well, I'll back up yeah. just a second more. Yeah. How long was it before you were in your then adopted home? So my records say that I was 18 months old when I was placed into the home of the parents who would eventually adopt me. And there, um, 
and, and this, I might as well just tell the story. So my daddy who adopted me, my, my daddy who raised me, that's how I call, refer to him. Um, one day he, he was dying and, and my husband and I, Jerry, were taking care of him. And he said, hey, I got to tell you something. And I said, what, daddy? And he said, you know how you know how me and your mama found you? I said, what do you mean how you found me? He said, you know how we went down to Cincinnati and got you? <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was at the children's home of Cincinnati is where I started off. And I said, no, daddy, how? And he said, we saw you on TV. So back in the day, they used to have something called like Tuesday's Child. <laughs> and on the news. Oh like were, adopted pet kind of thing? Yes. Whoa. Yes. And I said, and listen, I was, how old was I? I was 44 when he died. Mm-hmm. And I said, Daddy, how, why have you never told me this before? <laughs> and he said, well, I thought that might make you feel bad. <laughs> That's a, I mean, I mean, at 44, I mean, just, it's, it's amazing. Right? It's not... <laughs> But he, that, I thought it was sweet, and he was not an easy man. He was very angry yeah. and very, and tough. He lived with PTSD. He was drafted during the Vietnam War, and um, it was rough for us in the beginning. But we made up and had a wonderful, you know, relationship later in life. Mm. And um, but I just thought that was so funny that he had been holding on to that for so long, it's, and he was yeah. actually on his deathbed, like a few weeks before he died. I got to tell you something. <laughs> You're a TV baby. I was a TV baby. <laughs> and then I, I was doing, I actually Googled it. And if you look, it's like Wednesday's Child or Tuesday's Child. And it was a phenomenon. And, and it, you know, there's, there's sort of some, if, you know, stuff on the internet about, I said, am I, was he telling the truth? Right. Did they really put kids on TV like dogs? <laughs> there's a generation of children that found their homes through the television. That's just kind of, a, that sounds like a documentary that I'd love to watch. <laughs> See how, where, also, you, I mean... It could have been anywhere that you landed up, right? And, uh, wow. Ooh, listen, you are saying something so profound. Is I think that that sense of I could have been anywhere. So yeah. the expectation was that I was going to age out of foster care. <clears throat> the fact that a, that a black family saw me on TV and decided to go down to Cincinnati and get me. That's how they say, that's how they say it. And, and Marlene Faye, my my mother, who raised me, said, oh, I held you and you were just like a baby doll and you had a scar on your forehead, a forceps injury, um, but I didn't care. And, you know, and I mean, it, it was just it, it, it does sound like like a movie. And yeah. it was so atypical for black families to adopt. And it was absolutely atypical for white families to adopt children of color, which is why in the documentation you see the social workers telling my my, my biological grandparents over and over again, are you sure you want to do this? I was this their baby first, will not find a, a home. Yeah, I was their first grandchild. Oof. Mm-hmm. Did, why did your parents do it? Did they have financial means and they were, did they have trouble? Oh. Do you have other siblings? No. They mm-hmm. asked me at a certain point when I was about six, do you want a brother or sister? And I was like, y'all not bringing no other babies up in here for me to take care of. I'm already taking care of y'all. It's <laughs> like, we're not doing that. I very much parented both of my parents, you know, one of those, you know, but, um, and they were doing the best they could. Right. We all are. It sounds like, it sounds like some of your time as a young person was not a place where being softening was the right way to react. Probably having your reaction and your senses and your ability to hide or run or anything else you need to do that, that our bodies are good at doing 
was necessary at that age. So at some point you were able to figure out a way to shift that. When did you do that? It was, I wish I could tell you, Oh, I was riding a donkey on the road to Damascus and a bright light (laughs) came and I got knocked off my ass. And no, I, I think it was, you know, and, and, and so the other thing is that, you know, I'm, I'm ordained as a lay Zen Buddhist in the Soto Zen tradition. And that happened in 2009. I took those vows. And there's two sort of thoughts about awakening. And one is that it's that road to Damascus. That was a biblical reference. Did, did I hope it made sense? But <laughs> to Paul. Um, but there's one sort of school of thought that it happens like, like that. And there's this other school of thought where it's like, bit by bit, the obstacles to realizing who we are, just sort of like erode, right? A little bit. And so I think that the softening happened when I had the opportunity, you know, to have an encounter with somebody who accurately reflected who I am back to me or who showed me some love or demonstrated what grace looks like. Was this a teacher? It was a number of teachers. Mm-hmm. You know who else did this for me? Who else was part of this process for me? Maggie. Really? Yes. She is. Is I hope that's okay that I talk about her. Yeah, of course. <laughs> She's an amazing. For those that don't know, Maggie's my wife. Uh, <laughs> She's yeah. an amazing, amazing person. I fully agree with you there. Yes. And so, and when I say that, what I mean is that it's an ongoing process, the softening. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like, because it's the nature of, of our condition to ebb and flow from these states. And so my encounter with her grace and beauty and humor and heart, I mean, that was part of, you know, she's somebody I hold as, you know, I, it's hard to put into words because we get yeah. to the edge of something that you, it's deeply personal. Yeah. And I think it's okay not to have language in those spaces. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> Even though it's a podcast. <laughs> Even though it's a podcast. I don't know if that's going to work. <laughs> I think it's good. I, you're, you're touching on something that I have, I think we came to it in different ways, mm-hmm. um, but I definitely have this ability to go, oh, okay, well, I guess that's the way that's going to happen. Just kind of accept something. Yes. And it's a bit of what you're talking about, where at least I haven't necessarily, I mean, I definitely understand the idea of like going through and understanding your body is reacting to stuff. You're stressed. You've got, you're angry about not eating or whatever it is or shame or whatever's happening for you and recognizing it and going, oh, let me just let that get out of me for a bit. But the one of just like drastic life change, like your home burning down, recently went through that experience because we, of course, also evacuated, didn't know if the home was going to survive or not, as we didn't, taking the belongings in the family and getting out of town. And during that, at one point, I was like, well, I guess that will, if that happens, Mm -hmm. and I just started looking at what we'd be doing next, Mm -hmm. you know, I just, and that in that moment was just, I just released a lot of the pressure of that. Yes, yes. Maybe I also just, I think people claim it as like too much optimism too. Um, But I also like one of the things you touched upon is we don't know in the moment what our life is. We don't know how it's shaping us. We don't think about it. And then historically you think about it and you're like, oh, that was really important. Mm -hmm. I went through a divorce in my life and I wasn't planning on having a divorce, but I have two wonderful kids from that first marriage and I never changed that in the world. Yeah. 
your life is a much more traveling that you're kind of witness of it and realizing it later how important different pieces. Yes. And when you can stay in that witness as often as possible and realize that that witness is kind of the key to the softening. Yeah. And and that then things get a lot easier. So there are times that I spent years and years and years in grief and loss, you know, so you know my I I took care of my, my mom who adopted me lived with really severe mental illness. And so that's part of why I said, yeah, I'm not bringing no more kids up in here. Mm. <laughs> um, and so, um, and she died when I was 29 and I was her caregiver from 25 to 29. So I took care of her. She, she was, you know, fed her, toileted mm. her all the whole night. Oh. At a, which looking back, you know, I felt very, Old, you know, old at the time, but I was a baby in a certain sense, you know, yeah, doing that. Definitely. And um, so I think that, you know, and after that, in the wake of that, it's like, I felt like I was just, you know, years and years to unwind that grief and, mm-hmm. and, and not able to do. Oh, hang on a second. We're having some kind of problem. I'm going to stop the recording because it- I didn't touch anything on my computer. No, it, it definitely, your computer, something weird happened because the last word you said went just repeated, repeated, repeat, like a broken record. It was really intense. That sounds a lot like me. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. That just, that, that just sounds right about like, that sounds par for the course. So did you find this ability to accept and to soften and to flow into what's happening about you? Mm-hmm connected to Buddhism? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that part up is that because I am, was raised in the black church and am so appreciative of those encounters and that music and the spirit and the genuine love that I felt. And, but growing up with PTSD myself and depression, the spiritual construct of being like a worthless sinner that didn't help <laughs> <laughs> help help without those burdens and um and so I, I and also the biggest influence was i was in a fundamentalist school so my parents sent me to a white school private school because they were like we can't send you to this rinky ding public school we want you to learn how to read and it was a school that we would now characterize as a fundamentalist evangelical right Mm-hmm. So that's what it was like. It was very constricted. And if you are sad, it's your fault. And you're not, you have unconfessed sin in your life. I mean, it was just not a good thing to put on a kid who was mm-hmm. depressed. So I found, I stumbled across, um, a, a, you know, Buddhism and as a child and then got in trouble because that's of the devil. And then later, <laughs> this is a very profound story. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. My, my, my the, how I actually started this process. This is very deep. I met this guy, <laughs> and he had all these Buddhist tattoos, and he was so lovely. Oh my goodness! Oh, I mean. So you he, fell in love with him. He was your, uh, mm-hmm. he was your medicine into Buddhism. <laughs> he was my medicine, and I said, "Oh, I want to impress him." So I got a book by a teacher whose name I won't mention, and I put it on my coffee table so that when he came over, he would go, "Oh." <laughs> right. Okay, so you get this this Buddhist book. I get book, this Buddhist book. You put book. it on the coffee table. 
Yes. And, and I don't read a word of it. And he's impressed and he turns out to be a bozo. Um, but at a certain point I pick it up and I read life, the first noble truth that to, to live is to suffer. And I said, Ooh, I'm not messing with that. (laughs) And it took some more time to actually look at the rest of those truths because one of those truths is that there is a way to find relief from our suffering. And, and there is a list of sort of, you know, um, an eightfold path. And so I got curious and I started to look at that. And one of them is, is sort of right concentration and right thinking. It's like seeing things through um, this witness as opposed through my damage. Mm. And so the way that I would characterize it is that it was a path that started where I learned to lead with my wholeness and not my damage. Mm. And sometimes that said as, you know, I think, you know, we're bleeding all over people who didn't cut us. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Right. And that a lot of us are doing that. And maybe we're not bleeding all over them, but we're maybe like, throw it up on them a little bit, mm-hmm. but they didn't poison us. <laughs> I, yesterday I was just, when I was talking about perception with my friend Ben, a yeah. totally story came up of, you know, getting shame and then talking to somebody else that had nothing to do with that and getting angry at them and feeling righteous in that anger for a little bit and going, wait a second, that anger is about me. It's not about them. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, and what you just described, the capacity to do that is how we can change and transform what is arising in our culture and in our relationships. And I believe deeply that it starts within with this process of softening. However you get there, I happen to come through this whole long convoluted story I've been telling you, and it was the Buddhism and it was this, that and the third, but other people come through it other ways. So, um, one ocean, many shores, right? (laughs) So, you know, we can't put this thing, this softening or this approach or how to learn it into a box because I think it's deeply personal. Um, and very, very deeply personal and different and yeah. different. And I think that's also where we get wrong, where we, where we get lost. It's like, I've been saying to Jerry lately, everybody's like, well, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. That's valid. And I said, so nobody's wrong, but everybody want to be right. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. <laughs> you know, and it doesn't work. So it's even putting down, I often tell my, my trainees, I don't traffic in right and wrong. Just doesn't, not, it's not useful. It's not useful. Skillful, mm-hmm. unskillful. Helpful, unhelpful. Uh, loving, unloving. As kind as I can be or unkind. That, that's helpful. Now we're, now we're describing something that's actionable. But when we just try to stick to this right and wrong, we quickly lose our way. <laughs> Chuko, thank you so much for doing this with me. Oh, thank you so much. I hope I, I hope it works. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like the technical interlude. I just wish we had a little bit more time to keep talking, but I've oh, got to go back off to work. You've got to go to work. I do. You've yeah. got to go to your J-O-B. Yeah. Now, do you get to work from home? You have a I meeting. do. Okay. Yeah, I just switched to a different screen and talked to another amazing person. That's what I'm doing next, which is okay. great. Well, if you need a do-over, let me know. <laughs> or just to te- or to talk more about other things with you. That'd be great. I'd I would that. love it. I would love it um, because I think this is how we change the world, through talking and listening to each other. Because um, stories are medicine. Mm. Love it. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Bye-bye.